Welcome into the Original Gangsters podcast. I am your host, Scott M. Bernstein. And sitting across from me is my co-conspirator partner in crime, Dr. Jimmy Bucciolato. Ciao. Hey now. (laughs) So uh, this week we are going to uh, interview a a friend of the show um, and one of the fastest rising rock bio authors in the world. His name is Chad Cushions. Uh, he's written two spectacular rock bios, one on Warren Zevon and one that just dropped on Bonzo, John Bonham, the legendary drummer from Led Zeppelin. Um, and we're going to talk to him about uh, those two books, but we're also going to talk to him uh, about a project he's currently working on, which is the, uh, the uh, official uh, a state-sanctioned biography of Elmore Leonard, uh, Detroit's one of Detroit's favorite sons, and, and, and for my money, the, the best crime fiction writer in the history, history of, of uh, the literary world. Uh, I was a childhood idol of mine, someone that inspired a lot of my uh, uh, true crime writing. And then we're also going to discuss uh, Chad's research into the music world and how uh, uh, portions of that research into the music world uh, dovetails um, with the underworld and the mob. So uh, thank you, Chad, for joining us. You know I'm a huge fan of yours, and uh, I am uh, just so honored that you've taken the time to, to come on to OG and, and uh, chop it up with us. Thank you. So uh, you made my day a couple weeks ago. <laughs> he called me uh, from, from South Carolina where Chad's uh, knee-deep in research and uh, putting all the, uh, the pieces together to, to put forward the, the ultimate, most comprehensive uh, breakdown of Elmore Leonard's career. And, uh, yeah, we'll just tease it a little bit. So I guess going through his research, he found uh, Elmore's uh, affinity, I guess, for some of my writing. And uh, within Elmore's research, there was a, a box or a file that was dedicated to some of the stuff that I've written about the Detroit crime history. So that was very flattering, and, and, it, and it definitely made my day when he told me that a couple weeks ago. Well, from what I have seen, what I knew already, and from, from the, un, the 103 boxes of his personal effects that are here at the University of South Carolina, uh, he read a lot. He, he, this is somebody who would comb newspapers for what you had just described, fascinating niche stories where rich characterizations could be drawn from. And I have to mm-hmm. do a very quick shout out. Uh, his researcher of, of 30 plus years is Greg Sutter, who had put together and curated the, the collection that's here. And he would, for years, he would bring a lot of these stories to Dutch's attention. And uh, I, I do want to say I'm, I'm hopeful that this book will be a, uh, an official biography because I'm aiming for publication of what would be his, what would have been his centennial in 2025. But I'm very fortunate that he, his family is amazing, and uh, head of the estate is his oldest son, Peter Leonard, who doesn't live far from you. And Peter was actually, he's, he's a fabulous writer in his own right, writes very different type of material than his dad, but was kind enough to do a blurb for the Bonzo book. So fingers are crossed, but it's, it's a lot of great people that help put this collection together, and, and it's, it's really learning about his creative process. And it did. It surprised me, but it didn't surprise me when I saw that your books were in his collection because your work is so comprehensive, and his rich detail is kind of sort of what would create the characters on their own. We can get into all of that, whatever order you want to go in. But it's fascinating seeing his his process. Yeah. So I think that I wrote in my chapter uh, "Trouble in Paradise" um, about some of the. Um, 
machinations between uh, that I had read or had researched on yeah. a Dutch and Greg uh, researching the event that I was writing about. And I'm pretty sure on the night that this happened, um, and again, I, I apologize, I'm blanking on the exact time. I think it was 2002 or 2003. Yeah. Um, and it happened down in Southwest Detroit. And uh, there were uh, three Iraqi gangsters that were murdered and then chopped up with a chainsaw um, by a guy that went by the nickname uh, Friday the 13th was the name uh-huh. of the, the, was the, name of the killer. Yeah. Um, and, and then Friday the 13th uh, lured these, uh, these, these three Iraqi gangsters, uh, uh, one of which was the nephew of the Iraqi mob godfather, uh, Lou the Hammerhead Akrawi, who I actually own the rights to his uh, his life story, and I'm I'm in the process of uh, uh, developing it out in in L.A. right now in Hollywood. And uh, Lou was in prison at the time, and one of his nephews was one of the victims. And I know that uh, the bodies got chopped up with a chainsaw, and then to cover up the chainsawed bodies, the, the, the guy they called Friday the 13th uh, decided to torch the house that, it, that he had killed these people at. So it was on the news. And uh, if my memory uh, is accurate, uh, Dutch saw it on the local news and dispatched mm-hmm. yeah. Greg immediately to the scene of the crime. Like in real, like in real, like in real time. Jesus. <laughs> That's what Greg did, in fact, do for him for many, many, many years. Was he was exactly what he was. It was almost uh, Greg was an investigative reporter when they had first met in the late seventies, and then worked uh, for Dutch uh, exclusively. And, and and the word that you used was correct. He did dispatch him to do these types of things. There's tons of amazing stories about how they developed Get Shorty and how he would go to Miami and and, and spoke with the real Chili Palmer uh, about bookmaking. And then uh, if you were to see the, the film Jackie Brown, which is based on Rum Punch, every character that's in that is based on a real person that was interviewed by Greg on video. It was brought back to Dutch. He watched it. All the cadence of speech, all of it. This is a, probably an unpopular opinion with, with Quentin Tarantino enthusiasts. But for me, my two favorite Tarantino uh, films and screenplays are Jackie Brown, based on Rum Punch, and True Romance, yep. which he did not direct. A lot of people don't know that he he wrote. It was directed by Tony Scott. But, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people put put Jackie Brown uh, to the level that they, they – um, uh, that, that, that Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction or Inglorious Bastards or, or The Kill Bills. But to me, uh, out of the movies that he directed – Jackie Brown's my absolute favorite. Maybe, you know, I'm biased because of the connection to, to Elmore Leonard. Oh, yeah. But, uh, oh, those characterizations were so rich. Uh, Pam Greer, Robert Forrester, Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, what what a film. Chris Tucker. Isn't De Niro in there? De Niro, Bridget Fonda. It is perfectly cast. You read the book, you oh, can't imagine anyone. And the, mu- the soundtrack is outstanding. Uh, Michael Keaton. Um so just uh, sorry, I, I digress. I just wanted to say how highly much, recommended. How, how, what a huge fan I am of Jackie Brown and the 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 bad guy, the or yeah, the bad guy in the script, Ordell Roby, played by Samuel mm-hmm. Jackson, is supposed to be from Detroit. 
Well, he is, they're both supposed to be from Detroit, and they're mentioned in other books, but they've appeared twice. Mm-hmm. You can go down a really fun rabbit hole with this. It's funny that you brought up True Romance. Quentin did write that when he was still working at uh, the video store in L.A. and sold that script, and I think it was also uh, Natural Born Killers. They both sold, which helped him stake his first directorial, his directorial debut, which was Reservoir Dogs. But in interviews, he had said that True Romance as a screenplay was his attempt at writing an Elmore Leonard novel. And it feels like that. And it does. And the original screenplay is told in a nonlinear fashion, which is more literary than how Tony Scott directed it. It's a great film, but it looks like a Tony Scott movie, but it sounds like a Tarantino script. But to me, that's 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 the perfect, for me, that's the perfect combination because I love the way Tony Scott's films look. A Top Gun, Mm -hmm. Last Boy Scout, Enemy of the State. Um, You got it. And, and then I love Elmore Leonard's uh, dialogue and, and, and writing style. So you put them together, it's no, uh, it's, it's, it's shouldn't be a surprise that that's my, my favorite. And then... Uh, it's, it's his favorite of, of the adaptations as well. Yeah, so the first, uh, I would say first half of True Romance takes place in Detroit. If you've never, if anyone's listening to this, hasn't seen it, go go, go stream it. It's, James it's Gandolfini. Gandalf, it's one of the first times you see Gandolfini. Gandolfini's in it. One of the first times you see Brad Jackson Pitt. is in it. Mm-hmm. One of the first times you see Brad yep. Pitt. Um, Gandolfini, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's what made Gandolfini a player in Hollywood is his portrayal of, of a hitman named Virgil. Um, you got it. And, and the scene with him and, and, uh, Arquette is just electric. And then for, for my money, you know, excluding maybe a scene or two from the Godfather and Goodfellas, the scene in the trailer between Christopher Walken oh, and Dennis yeah. Hopper is for my money, the best scene in any gangster movie ever. I mean, again, barring, you know, excluding maybe a scene or two from Godfather or, or Goodfellas. Uh, the scene, uh, we, don't, we don't have to go too much into it because it's quite racy. Don't spo- it's and quite don't, racy. And don't spoil it. because you, you, you can what, go to YouTube immediately yeah. and watch it. Yeah, yeah. it's there. Yeah. If, when you watch the movie in real time, it's, it's, uh, I think that's the best way because I didn't oh. know about that scene until I watched the film. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, it's a pretty tense yes. scene. And then it's dark comedy. <laughs> and if I ever met Tarantino, the first thing I would say would be like, how much do I need to give you to give me the rights to the character Vincent Cacati? That for people, <laughs> and that's, this is a real deep dive, but that's the Christopher Walken character in True Romance. He's only in, I think, uh, one scene. It's the scene that we're talking about right now. Uh, and he plays yep. the either the, the, the mob boss of Detroit or a high-ranking mob figure in Detroit named Vincent Cacati. And uh, if I ever was next to, to Tarantino at a meal, I'd be like, so what do I have to do to get the rights to, to Vincent Cacati? And we could write a whole prequel sequel based on that one character from that one scene. Well, it's funny that you should say that because I always felt that maybe, maybe that character was at least loosely inspired by The King of New York, which was mm-hmm. his previous gangster film directed by Abel Ferrara. And I will say this. I don't know if there were ever cut scenes, deleted scenes, whatever it is. Hopefully one day there would be a deluxe special edition. But there were promo title cards in 1993 of scenes that I did not recognize with Walken in it. So if anything was cut, I would love to know what it was. But they exist. So maybe. Um, But I do have one quick uh, Tarantino anecdote. Yeah. And uh, you guys might know this. If not, that's totally cool. Uh, Rum Punch, which became the film Jackie Brown, is in fact a sequel. It, it, It was the switch which is one of Dutch's books from the late 70s, and Ordell Roby, which is Samuel Jackson's character, and Louis, uh, is, De, Niro's, is, uh, De Niro's character. Gar, I think it's Louis Gar, Lou Garza, I think is the character's name. There you go. 
Yep, you got it. The two of them are younger, and they, uh, if you've never read the book or seen a recent film that was an adaptation of it, uh, they are uh, partners. They kidnap a woman who doesn't know that her husband has a mistress and is having an affair, so he doesn't want her back. That storyline was stolen for ruthless people, so it took huh. like 30 years for them to make a proper film. But this is the thing that I think is fascinating. It tells you everything about why Quentin Tarantino writes the way that he does. When he was a teenager, I think he was about 14, 15 years old, he was caught shoplifting at his local mall. What he stole was a copy of The Switch. And ah, he finally became a famous a film director. Anecdote. It's true. When he finally became a famous filmmaker, and it was Miramax at the time, bought all these properties for him. The one that he selected was the one that had the characters that he had been obsessed with since he was a teenager. He had been waiting 15, 20 years in order to finally do dialogue with those two characters, but it happened to be the sequel, not the original. So you can even see Flay, if you, the, the, uh, the first uh, major scene with Travolta and Samuel Jackson in Pulp Fiction, the back and forth, if you squint a little bit, you can see that really it's, it's, it's Ordell, Roby, and Lewis. It, it really, it, you can see that it inspired even, I believe, the hitmen from Pulp Fiction. So, so Dutch is, is a vein that goes right through Tarantino's work. And one final thing, uh, Tarantino just dropped his first novel. He did his own novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It came out about six months ago. Yep. And of course, because he loves pop culture and kitsch, the paperback of it has fake advertisements for other books in the back of the paperback. And one of the books that he insisted have its own ad is The Switch. So he never got over that book when he was a kid. Anyway, please continue. I, I couldn't believe that when I saw it. You should see my face when I picked it up in the bookstore. He never let it go. Let me digress one more time. Um, uh, give me your, and Jimmy, I want to get your opinion on this too. Uh, give me your, uh, you know, 30-second uh, opinion of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, Who's first? I was so excited for that film. I had anticipated this was going to be my all-time favorite Tarantino movie because I love Tarantino and uh, really people assume that my uh, pathway to writing about crime started with my family being connected to the Purple Gang and, uh, you know, being into the mafia stuff, but it really wasn't. My foray into writing about true crime started with uh, a research paper I did in ninth grade on the Manson family. So I'm uh, obsessed with the Manson family story. I'm set. I'm obsessed with Tarantino. And I was so uh, jazzed up to see the film. And there were some great, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, um, uh, uh, impugn the entire film because I thought there were parts of it that were, were excellent. He, he definitely, captured the essence of 1969 Los Angeles and, and that in itself was a uh, accomplishment and and the attention to detail was was outstanding i thought the acting uh, DiCaprio's acting was amazing Brad Pitt's acting was amazing but that all said i was disappointed with the film and it, and and and, it, and coming into the film thinking that it was going to be my all-time favorite Tarantino movie at the end of the day, I, I would probably put it in my bottom two or three Tarantino films. I'm glad I'm not the only one. And uh, if uh, whoever wants to go next is fine, but I, I do have an opinion. Before COVID, that was the last film that I saw on the big screen. And I felt that that was a fitting movie to see in the theater before there were no more theaters for a year. 
uh, I had my own issues with it. I'm a Tarantino fan. I thought the look of it was incredible. I thought the tone of it was incredible. You could see that he was writing his own love letter to Los Angeles. Yes. My personal issues with it are when he veers, uh, and I, I mean, he's an incredible screenwriter, and you know what to expect from him. If you've seen Inglorious Bastards, you know, Hitler dies, you know, spoiler right. alert, he kills off Hitler, which is, of course, <laughs> wishful thinking. But I've always had issues when somebody has the budget, the talent, the, the abilities, and the cast to make something definitive, and then just doesn't. When we talk about, uh, you're saying you're obsessed with the Manson family. I can't go into too much detail, but I am working on something that's very personal to me on Dennis Wilson. Mm-hmm. Manson does not, does not factor into it. I don't want to go, when I'm writing, I don't want to go too much into that because Dennis himself always wanted to forget that awful episode in his life. For people that don't know, it was more than just an episode. I mean, Dennis Wilson was, was, was recruited into yeah. the Manson family, uh, tried to get Charlie Manson a, a record deal on a they number, wrote songs together, didn't number they? of occasions. Oh, yeah. One of Manson's songs made its way onto a, a Beach Boys Two of them. album uh, Two of and them. then uh-huh. was yep. you know, threatening to, to kill him. And they fleeced him. The Manson family fleeced Dennis Wilson of, of money and property, and uh, it wasn't just a dalliance. It's, it's a fascinating story when you get into the real nitty-gritty of it, and I have to recommend a fantastic book if you're interested. Uh, the Manson biography by a fellow true crime writer, uh, Jeff Gunn. Yeah, I've read, I've, read, I've read them all. I've read them all, yeah. It's, it's, oh, Jeff's, Jeff's, one the, Jeff's one of the, uh, the best uh, in the business when it comes to chronicling the Manson case. He is, and he's a real gentleman in real life. Yeah. He, uh, he helped me out with an interview when I needed to talk about this because Manson doesn't factor into what I want to write about Dennis. I'm big into the music itself, but you can't not research it for context. And I did speak to one of Dennis's best friends and co-songwriters in an interview named Greg Jacobson, yeah. who was there for all of this. Right, and then Greg Jacobson was involved and in, was at the center of all this. He, he was someone that was uh, frequenting the, the Spawn Ranch. That's exactly what I was getting at when I spoke to him. He told me he had seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, had mixed feelings. Uh, I'm not speaking for him, but we, we talked uh, about it. And he said what he was taken with is the recreation of the ranch. It was perfect, Perf- according to him. And he had been there. So when you take that into account, the actor that played Manson is only in a couple of scenes, but he looks exactly like him. The actor that plays Steve McQueen looks exactly like him. I really wanted to see more of, 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 of those historically accurate. And I can't get over the fact that in no, in, in no real reality, would Bruce Lee get his ass kicked by Brad Pitt? Oh, yeah, I'm that, sorry. That's a that big... would never happen. <laughs> <laughs> that bothered me while I was sitting in the theater. Like, are you kidding me? And as much as I do admire DiCaprio as an actor, he's a fantastic actor. I don't want to ever see Steve McQueen removed from The Great Escape and replaced with someone else. So there were these little personal things that irked me, you know, but that's just me. Uh, but the film looked fantastic. It did. And, of course, Brad Pitt's visual look, the way he's driving around, picks up one of the Manson girls on the side of the road. They never say it, but it's it's loosely inspired by, by Dennis, Dennis Wilson. Right. Dennis thing. Wilson picked yeah, up two Manson yeah. girls hitchhiking. And the next thing he knows, within a week, the Manson family has moved into his mansion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and by the way, uh, they, they, it will never be released. But somewhere in the Brothers Records archive is is a full produced demo. Of, of Manson songs where, where, you know, their, their engineer was sitting there, they recorded it at Brian Wilson's house. And I think it was, it was probably shelved in case it was going to be needed for the Helter Skelter trial, but luckily it wasn't. If it hadn't been destroyed, I'm pretty sure it still exists. We're just never going to hear it. And we don't need to, but <laughs> that was a huge, no, we don't need to, we don't, to me, again, I'm, I'm going, I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but you know, one of the most, I will say the most overrated criminal in the history of the world is Charles Manson. Charles Manson uh, was a pussy. 
Let me just say that. If Charles Manson was as he he wanted to be the face of evil and, and he got off on all that. Well, if Charles Manson was as badass as he thought he was, he would have gone and killed those people himself. He wouldn't have sent a bunch of 19-year-old girls to do it. He was really a cult leader more than anything yeah. else. Well, you and know, that's what I, I took away from you know what I would you know, you know what I would argue? I would argue that he was a hippie mob yeah. boss. He was running a racketeering. He was running a racketeering enterprise out of Spawn Ranch. I mean, uh, yes, he was mm -hmm. keeping the drugs coming in with drugs, uh, stolen property, prostitution. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how how entrepreneurial that guy was for the very few years that he wasn't behind bars. Jimmy, do you want to uh, add any opinion on uh, Once Upon a Time? Well, I would just say uh, (laughs) I agree with uh, what you guys are saying. I mean, first of all, with the Bruce Lee situation it reminded me of even being a kid watching you know i was a big fan of the batman 66 series and when they did the crossover with green hornet and robin like kicks kato's ass even then as a little kid i never this is not right there's no way there's no way he could robin could take bruce lee and it reminded me of in the film but I, i agree with you it's it's a it's a really compelling film to watch i agree with you both the cinematography the costume design the set. I mean, it really makes you think like you're like you're there, but um, I just don't. I just didn't find it overall very interesting. I'm not, and also maybe maybe I just was, maybe I'm you know didn't pick up on all the, you know the previews of it. But I thought, I mean, I I was when I first heard that movie was coming out, I I was under the impression it was a movie about the Manson family. Well, that's what he wanted you yeah. to be under the impression. Yeah. Of. So I don't know if I was misled or I just it was right. a bait and switch, and this is another part of my issue. Yeah. Was that it was announced. I mean, they kind of danced around it with saying, oh, it's not about the Manson family. But they were promoting it as a movie about the Manson family. And I then, so. And yeah. then, yeah. It, and this is another one of my big issues with it. it. When you're Tarantino, when you've reached that level, the Tarantino, the Coppola, the Spielbergs, the Scorsese's, you know, you've, 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 you've attained the right to be self-indulgent at certain points because you've reached the pinnacle. But this movie was just way too self-indulgent for me from, from, from Tarantino's perspective to the point where I feel like the way he handled the Manson stuff was a fuck you to both the audience <laughs> and to Manson. And I don't have a problem with him saying <laughs> fuck you to Manson, but I do have a problem with him saying fuck you to the audience. And in a similar way, to the to to what I was saying about uh, David Chase in in the Sopranos movie, where I felt like he had contempt yeah. contempt for the audience. I don't I don't think Tarantino had That's contempt for the thing. audience, but I do believe making people think that this thing was a, a a story about the Manson family to to any degree was false advertising. You you cast someone as Charles Manson, and then you don't give him any dialogue in the film. He's in the film for less than 20 seconds. Um, and it just, it just felt very, uh, I felt duped and I'm not saying well, he had, he had I, to, I'm not saying he had to make a movie about Charles Manson, but I think if you're going to go down that, uh, down that path, I do feel like you owed it to me to give some service to the Manson family storyline more than just using it as a prop or as a uh, a marketing tool, this is what I well, is what I Scott, think. Scott, I, I do have good news for you, Scott. If you haven't watched it, one of uh, the shows on Netflix. Uh, I hope it comes back. There's only two seasons. Mind Hunter, mm-hmm. David Fincher's uh, show. 
in season two, I, I, I apologize that the name of the actor is escaping me, but the actor that played Manson for Tarantino returned for one episode of Mindhunter when the, when the two profilers visit Manson in jail. And it's the same actor, and he has dialogue, and it's a monologue. And you finally get the scene that you wanted out of Tarantino, but it's in the small, it's on the small screen in, in uh, Mindhunter. So if you get a chance, check out the episode. I can't think of it right off the top, but it is chilling. The casting on that show was absolutely flawless. The guy that played Summer Sam looked exactly like him. You, could, you, you, you can't believe how well, how well they casted it. But for Manson, they got the same guy that Tarantino had discovered, and he gets the big scene that you have just said you wanted. So if you get a chance, check that out. Yeah, my students, uh, I have a lot of criminal justice students, and they, I've never watched it, but they, they're, like, insane for Mindhunter. I've, every one of my students says that that's a great show, but I, both seasons. It I really is. I haven't seen it, though. I think it's just two seasons or three now. I don't know what it is, but I've heard it's very good. It was only two, and I think COVID put a stop to, I think, uh, production on the third. I hope it comes back because it's riveting. Every episode felt like a small film. And because it, uh, it's, it was, uh, I think, uh, executive produced by John Douglas, the original profiler. It's loosely based on his, uh, his life and his notes. Uh, the, the evolution of the profiling unit at Quantico is handled very realistically. So anybody who's a true crime buff, I do recommend that show. It's excellent. Anyone that's interested in Manson, uh, I would recommend the original Helter Skelter television movie, which uh, I believe you could get the full cut of, which is like four hours. And Steve Ra- series, yeah. Steve's rails, Steve Railsback plays Manson, and he is riveting. When was that? I can't it remember. It came out that. like in 77 or 78. But I they feel ran, like I've seen They that. ran it all throughout yeah. my life. Yeah, I, I mean, I, say, I were like watching it through that. the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Uh, I own the, the DVD copy of it where it has the full four-hour cut. Um but uh, I would recommend if you're interested in it, that's it, a very, even though it was uh, very early in the, 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 you know, the Manson mythology, if you will, uh, came out only yeah. a couple years yeah. after the trial. But uh, it, it was all based on Vincent Bugliosi's book. Vincent Bugliosi was the yeah. prosecutor. Um, and, and I was uh, very, very impressed with it. And, and, and it holds up. I've, I, I watched it more recently as an adult and uh, really believe that it, it stands the test of time. I, I would recommend anyone um, that's interested in it go back and, and take a look at that. Oh, I'll rewatch it now, yeah. I do want to finish with Dutch really quick since yeah. we are talking movies, if that's okay. Yes, please. If I may. I do want to say the depth of research that actually is at the university here. I have to, uh, because they've been incredibly good to me and there's stuff here that I didn't even know existed, for example. And I'm so excited to read these and, and report on it is, uh, Elmore Leonard was not just a novelist for uh, over 20 years. He was a very highly paid screenwriter. Eventually he got tired of doing that. And the result is what you see in get shorty, which is his, his anti-love letter to Hollywood. But some of the things here are fascinating, such as he was commissioned by Steve McQueen to write an original screenplay that never got produced. Every draft of the screenplay is here. So Elmore Leonard writing for Steve McQueen is the greatest movie I've never seen. And it's here. And uh, and originally he had flown uh, to Europe back in the 70s to meet with Sean Connery and uh, Michael Caine because they were doing the great train robbery. I think it was a great train robbery together. And they wanted uh, Dutch to write a British bank robbery film where the two of them would play buddies. And there's a spec script here for that too. So there's some stuff here at the college that uh, I, I, the resources are absolutely insane that I didn't know existed. 
And uh, you will find this interesting. I think, you know, Dutch passed away in 2013. He had taken a private tour of the college with his son, Peter, because it, 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 at the time, Dutch was not in the, in the best of health. But there was a huge selling point. If you, if you were to visit this college, and I do recommend anybody who, who is, fast, is open to the public, you just got to just get clearance to do any kind of research and see it firsthand. From what I was told, when uh, Dutch saw F. Scott Fitzgerald's collection, the galley proofs for The Great Gatsby, the flask that Zelda Zelda gave to Scott before he was supposed to go and fight in World War One. It's all here. The Heming uh, the copy of the For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was Dutch's favorite book, signed from Hemingway to F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's here, and uh, the book, the the crime novel from the seventies by George V. Higgins, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. That was Dutch's favorite later book, which he said helped free him when it came to dialogue. The Higgins collection is here. Uh, the James Elroy collection is here. And I, I, I almost go down a rabbit hole at the college itself. Last night, uh, I went to uh, this incredible uh, speech by a Holocaust survivor because I didn't even know this, but back in August, the Anne Frank Center is here on campus, which is the only officially sanctioned one from the original uh, Anne Frank House in Amsterdam, as a matter of fact. And it's the only permanent exhibition in North America. And it's down the street from the literary archive. So anybody who's looking for researching almost anything that you can imagine, I, I've got an apartment that's a block away. So I'm pretty much reading and writing all the time because I can't believe what's here. And I could see why Elmore Leonard would want uh, this to be the final resting place of his 60-year-plus career. You're in a literary paradise, my friend. Yeah, I'm glad I'm a nerd. 12-year-old me is having a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you mentioned Friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, I just yeah. let... Let me just tell you that that is the most underrated gangster movie of all time. Anyone that knows right. knows that that is that's up there with the best, uh, you know, uh, crime fiction that you'll ever see on the screen. Fucking masterpiece. I mean, it really was a masterpiece. The only thing I can't understand is why it took so long for people to film Elmore Leonard uh, adaptations correctly. Because I read Higgins' book. As part of my research, I want to see what Dutch was so enamored with. And then I watched the film. The film is incredible, but the book is incredible, and it's almost 90% dialogue. I don't understand what would have been so difficult about taking something like 52 Pickup and doing exactly what they had done with The Friends of Eddie Coyle, because it's such an amazing translation, and the book and the films both both stand on their own. But it took maybe 20-plus years. I actually like 52 Pickup. 52 Pickup is uh, not—it's a flawed film. Um, the adapt the, the adaptation of of uh, Dutch's book, uh, Roy Scheider is the star of it. It came out I want to say eighty. He's great in it. Yeah, eighty four, eighty five. I like it. I mean, it definitely. Um, I wouldn't give it an A. Uh, there were there were some uh, you know <laughs> things that I, I would have uh, stayed more loyal to the book. Um, but I, I I thought it was I actually think it was one of uh, the better adaptations of of uh, Elmore's uh, writing even though that people don't remember that film. Uh, it's, it, it holds up in certain areas because the casting is perfect. Roy Scheider and Anne Margaret play the married couple in it, and you can, you can see how the casting was perfect from the, from the book itself. And they did follow the template of the novel and a lot of the dialogue. But it was the 80s, so there's got to be some explosions yep. and there's got to be more gunplay and there's stuff like that. So it's a really fun hybrid if you love Elmore Leonard, but you also love like the late night cheesy 80s, 80s films produced by the Canon Film Group. Yeah. So if you like that, this is your movie. Yeah. So I, I want to pivot to 
an event sure. that's kind of a not kind of it's a it's a footnote in in musical history, but it's a fascinating footnote. And both Chad and I uh, came across um, this event in our research, and I want oh, yeah, we became friends based on this. right, yeah. and I, I want to kind of color it up for people. Um, so this is kind of the the perfect encapsulation of when the world of rock and roll or the world of popular music uh, clashes or um, runs in to the world of, of, of mobsters, gangsters, drug dealers, and, and what, uh, you know, what, what, what results uh, uh, from, from that uh, union. So uh, we're, we're specifically talking about an event that took place in the summer of 1977. It was dubbed the Black Woodstock um, was officially known as the Brute Music Festival. Uh, it was in Callaway, mm-hmm. Callaway, Maryland, uh, between July 1st and July 5th, 1977. Um, and it, it was a event that was put on uh, by the Genovese crime family, one of New York's five families. Um, officially? Uh, well, no, I'm just <laughs> they have that yeah, on the sponsor. sponsored yeah. by Genesis. <laughs> 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 and the Jeffy uh, So uh, to give a little background. The food uh, would be great. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of this ties right into Vincent the Chin Gigante, who is one of yeah. the more yeah. iconic New York godfathers of the last uh, 50, 60 years. And uh, he headquartered out of Greenwich Village. And one of his main uh, moneymaker associates was a Jewish guy by the name of Morris Levy, Mo Levy. Mo Levy became famous in the music industry for uh, being a gangster, a <laughs> uh, gangster music executive that, that uh, muscled yeah. uh, dozens and dozens of artists out of their uh, publishing and uh, just really uh, – raped these these artists for 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 all all intents and purposes uh had a place called uh, an outfit called roulette records um and was just a shark uh he, he mo levy had a right hand man and enforcer by the name of uh nathan mccullough uh was a came from the islands uh, i believe he was born um in the Bahamas. Jamaican descent. Jama- yeah. He's Jamaican. Uh, spent yeah. some time in the, in the Bahamas and uh, gets hooked up with Levy and the Genovese crime family and becomes a music executive himself. He had his own uh, record label called Calla Records. And a lot of people point to him as the reason that we all know Bob Marley. He uh, went to Jamaica and licensed Marley's music and uh, brought it back to the United States and Canada and got it played on uh, mainstream radio here. Um, And in uh, 1977, Levy, McCullough uh, decided they needed um, an apparatus to to launder uh, dirty money. So they, through some intermediaries, get hooked up with a a uh, small-time R&B music empresario out of Washington, D.C., uh, Norris Little, who went by the nickname Brute. And uh, Little had been putting on a music concert for about 10 years that he called the Brute Music Festival, but it was it was small and quaint 
and it really kind of glorified jam sessions with local musicians uh, from the D.C. area. He was looking to expand. Uh, there was a, uh, a, a very famous and popular disc jockey from Washington, D.C. named uh, Nighthawk Terry, um, who if you ever saw the movie Talk to Me with Don Cheadle, there's a character based on Nighthawk Terry played by Cedric the Entertainer. And uh, McCullough uh, knew Nighthawk Terry from the, the payola scams that Levy and, and McCall were running uh, out of New York. And through Terry, they met Little. They came to an agreement to uh, pump a lot more money and resources into the Brute Music Festival for 1977 than, than, than it ever had before and to promote it as the Black Woodstock. Um, it was staged at a, uh, a ranch in Callaway, Maryland, and it was headlined by the Commodores, Cool and the Gang, Johnny, uh-huh. Johnny Taylor, who at the time was uh, coming off a number one song, uh, Disco Queen, and the Brothers Johnson, which was a big uh, funk act from L.A., uh, were the four headliners, but the Commodores and, and Cooling Gang were were the real marquee uh, attractions. And this all sounds great, but at the end of the day, you have five murders that were connected yeah. to this music festival. Uh, murders that took place before the music festival occurred, and music uh, and, and murders that took place in the fallout from the music festival where. It appears, uh, if you read uh, DA and FBI documents, Nighthawk Terry and a associate of his, uh, a, a big D.C. drug lord named Linwood Gray, um, had schemed to defraud the festival um, uh, of hundreds of thousands of dollars in bootlegged uh Tickets and backstage passes. Which means defraud the mafia. Defraud, yeah, defraud Which the mafia. Which is not smart. Right. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, five dead, including Big Nate McCullough, who was a suspect in murdering the four other people that died before he did. So that, that's the, the two, two three-minute synopsis, maybe five minutes. I don't know how long I've been talking. but uh, No, I, I'm glad you did. <laughs> so, uh, Chad, uh, you know, g- give us some insight uh, from, from your perspective. I know you were writing a uh, – or you're in the process of writing an article on Levy and McCullough and, and came across this in the same way I did when I was uh, writing something on Levy and McCullough. Well, first of all, I'm going to say this right now. I'm, I'm, for everyone that's listening, it is so apparent why I sought you out to interview you for what I'm working on <laughs> because you, you had written on it extensively and I was riveted when I read your initial article. Uh, the way that I'm doing it is a little bit different, not to backtrack a little bit, but it, it's not represented in the books that I am fortunate enough to have published, but for feature articles, I call them articles, but they're in name only. They are kind of cre- the hybrid of creative nonfiction where it's, where it reads like fiction, but it's all based in fact and it's legally vetted. I was very, very fortunate in September of 2019 that the daily beast ran a, like a novella length article I had written, uh, about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, an attempt to steal Elvis Presley's body, which really did happen. Uh, they were, they were going to hold it for ransom. And it's a footnote in history that people have forgotten, but it's the reason that Elvis's body was eventually moved to Graceland and the Presley family had it rezoned. Now, when I read of this footnote, I'm like, this should be an Elmore Leonard esque 
novel, but it's true. So as an homage to him a few years ago, I, I tried to write it in his style. I wanted to write nonfiction that reads like Elmo Leonard fiction, and that was the first one. I, uh, this one is going to be around the same tone and the same style. So you and I have a lot of the same research, but uh, a different narrative voice, which is why I, I love seeing the stuff that you have dug up. These, the, the, this story itself is incredible. The one that I'm working on now, I'd like to try and time it for, the, for July 4th, is my focal, my, my focus on it is big Nate McCullough. He, to me, he's the most interesting uh, person that is in this. And as you had said, he had his own division, which was Kayla Records, which was part of Roulette Records. What I found interesting is that he's Af African-American and he is given the opportunity. He is given his own company uh, by the Genovese crime family and it's staked by them because that's an offshoot of Morris Levy's uh, mainstream uh, pop label that's for the white audience. And since he has a lot of uh, insight and friends and networking in the black community, I, the, the rumors are is that he had also done enforcer work and he took out a couple of the right people for the family. And as a thank you, he was given his own record. Today. I don't think it's a rumor. Now, he, I can confirm that from my <laughs> research from talking to FBI agents and uh, actual street figures from New York that, that uh, and, and ran, ran around with him. Uh, he was someone that was African-American that was able to get in the good graces of uh, the Italians in New York, like very few in the past. Right. So this is, this is an anomaly. So he's a fascinating character and an entrepreneur, entrepreneur with this. So he, so he's using his, his criminal activity to try and stake a legitimate business. I, I would think, because from what I had read, what I had seen interviews with artists who worked with him, he took his record label incredibly seriously as a producer when he wasn't doing things for Morris Levy, that was, you know, uh, underground criminal yeah. activity. Yeah. And the, you know, I don't think a lot of people who are part of the Brute Music Festival even understood where the money came from. Most of all, Nighthawk Terry. The idea that he, look, you know this better than anyone. Uh, Nate wanted to diversify. So the idea of having a huge music festival with these big artists at the time could really have made him and made him legitimate in every way, shape, and form. Now, you had said this. He, uh, he was from the islands originally, but he grew up in New York. He was actually a war hero. He was a Korean War vet and a paratrooper. So he was a huge dude, big, big guy, and worked as the, an enforcer, ran this label, and then the opportunity in the 70s came up where he could have this festival. And he partnered up with a bunch of people, including Nighthawk Terry, who, who had criminal activity of his own, drug running. Nobody really knew this, especially the artists that were involved. Uh, what... The biggest mistake imaginable is that Nighthawk Terry was also printing counterfeit tickets and was scamming the, the Genovese crime family that was staking him. One of the people I was lucky enough to interview for this, it was an ongoing project, is Barry Richards, who was uh, a DJ at the time, friends with Nighthawk. And he had told me when they were, when he, uh, Barry was running the disco section of this festival while everything else was going on. There are no photos of this festival. There's no footage of this festival because Nighthawk Terry from the very beginning was creating counterfeit tickets. He didn't want the numbers to be reflected because he was going to pocket the cash. And what I was told is that one person of prominence showed up with his own videographer and was told to get rid of it. Lionel Richie was told not to have a camera and they actually took it away from him. So that's the Commodores wanted to have footage of this because everybody that was involved was taking pride that it was going to be the Black Woodstock. It was a big deal for the, the Baltimore community. I had lived over there 
uh, years ago. I worked for the NAACP, so I went through archives of the old newspapers. This is, this is what's fascinating. You didn't see advertisements for this festival in any of the mainstream media, but there are newspapers that yeah. are geared, that were geared towards the African-American community. And it was ads for it. And this is kind of cool. It's 1977. The ad for it is right next to an article on Pam Greer, which says, you know, the, the Hollywood starlet of the future. So that was really cool to see, like, this is, this is the time period and this is uh, like a black exploitation film. You can almost see it like that. But everybody that was involved was taking this very seriously. And I believe McCullough did as well. And it turned into a ton, a hotbed of criminal activity right away. And you, and you know this, two of the counterfeiters that were, that were doing the, the, the selling of the tickets, they were found murdered on, what was it, July 2nd, before the festival even takes place. It was on like the second day of the festival. So they, Linwood Gray was this very powerful African-American heroin kingpin in mm-hmm. uh, D.C. that would finance uh, different ventures to, to, to launder money, but uh, also was um, involved in the music industry to some capacity. And Gray was partnered with Terry on a number of endeavors, both legal and illegal. Gray sent two of his guys to be his boots on the ground and, uh, at the festival in, in the weeks preceding in all the, um, the planning and, and organizing and, and building of, of the stage and, and, uh, uh, the, the getting the, the property ready for the festival. Uh, their names were Howard McNair and, and, and Teddy Brown. Uh, Howard went by, the, yep. went by the nickname Hawkeye, Hawkeye McNair. And then, uh, Theodore Brown by, went by the nickname Fast Teddy. So Fast Teddy uh, Brown and Hawkeye McNair were, you know, D.C. hoodlums, drug world figures that work for Linwood Gray. They're sent to Callaway, Maryland, which is in the eastern shores region of the state, uh, to help put the festival together. But in reality, they're working with Nighthawk Terry to undermine the festival. Now, this was doomed from the beginning. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and word, was. before the festival even gets off the ground on July 1st, word is... <laughs> trickling back to New York City of what's going on behind the scenes there with all the counterfeiting. And word made it to Levy and then eventually made it to Gigante. And mm-hmm. they sent yeah. McCullough. He, I, I don't think McCall was supposed to get there until July 1st. He got there earlier. And then a day into the concert, uh, McNair and Brown are found executed on the outskirts of the property. They were like uh, maybe 50 yards outside the official um, limits of the property, and they were both shot execution style in the back of the head. Uh, McCullough mm-hmm. was the top suspect. The uh, concert or the, the, the festival goes from July 1st to July 4th. On July 5th, McCullough shows up at WOL, which is Nighthawk Terry's radio station. And according to witnesses, there is a giant verbal altercation that erupts in the lobby between Nighthawk Terry and McCullough, with McCullough accusing Terry of, uh, of 
stealing or defrauding the Genovese crime family of over a million dollars in, in, in ticket fees. It's only, I think it's like 150 tickets that he had, that, that he had uh, printed up and pocketed. But the place could only hold 200 people, 200,000 people. So if 150,000 right, of the exactly. 200,000 were counterfeited, and then within a couple weeks, uh, Nighthawk Terry vanishes um, and was last seen leaving a radio station in D.C. in his blue, blue-colored automobile, uh, Oldsmobile, Oldsmobile Tornado. His body was never found. Uh, FBI and DEA heard rumors that he was taken to a farm in North Carolina, chopped up yeah. and uh, buried there. It wasn't an informant. An FBI informer had actually said there's some awful joke about it. if you're looking for, you know, Nighthawk, you can find parts of him right. around North Carolina. Yeah. Then McCullough is getting heat. McCullough, Levy, Gigante are all getting heat from this. And McCullough leaves New York uh, by fall uh, and relocates to Florida where he was living for the next couple of years. I'm not sure if he was hi- who he was hiding from, if he was hiding from the mob, if he was hiding from the feds. But uh, from, from my research and, and some of my documents, uh, FBI documents that I, I got my hands on and, and talking to some people that were uh, connected into the Genovese crime family at that time, the, the decision was made by Gigante to get rid of McCullough to, to cover the tracks from what had happened. Levy signed off on the murder and helped the hit team locate McCullough uh, in a residence in Fort Lauderdale. And he is murdered there in 1980. Um, you think it was Gigante's idea or, or? Gigante. I think Gigante decided to get rid of him. Not Levy wanting to and then asking Gigante to do it. No, from what the research that I had was that Levy had no choice but to sign off on it. That the order well, had come I, from I have to ask you this, yeah. Scott. I don't mean to cut you off, but what you just said was interesting. You said he had no choice. Was there a friendship and a kinship since he, he had been no. his right-hand man for a decade and a half? They were very close. Yeah. I mean, they were like brothers. They had no choice, but they let this be sanctioned. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. if he if he tried to stay in the way of it, They'd they would have killed him. him. Too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a, and a brief, there's, there's a huge soul. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I'll, only, I'll just give a, a quick anecdote to give a, a yeah. in, insight yeah. into Vincent Gigante's mind. You know, he was someone that solved all of his problems by murder. Uh, there was a... Uh, a a wiretap that he was caught on where he was discussing other families' protocols of demoting people. And Mm -hmm. he said, we don't demote people. We kill them. (laughs) (laughs) We don't, he said, we don't demote our captains. We just kill them. It illuminates the terrain that Vincent Gigante was uh, existing on and in and and the power, the the power that, that he wielded, uh, Going, you know, his power started to build in the 70s. He became boss of the, the Genovese crime family in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and led the family until he died in the 2000s. But, uh, yeah. you know, this was, this was his M.O., was, you know, cut all ties. To me, the social aspect of it is what was the most fascinating. And it's interesting because the point that you made, that Morris Levy and Nate were so close. You have to remember, they're both taking orders from one of the most powerful Italian uh, crime organizations in New York, but they're also ultimate outsiders. You know, Morris Levy yeah, was, Jewish, was a very black. important person. 
Exactly. And that was what that I think that there was definitely a bond and a kinship because they could not be made men. They couldn't be officially part of an organization. But roulette records, as you know, was used to, to filter money and, and launder money. But they still were taking orders from higher ups that were a completely different ethnicity. And there's there's almost like a there's there's tiers of it. So when you go and you look at that, to me, what, what fascinated it uh, to me is that Morris Levy, even though he's taking orders, he's doing all this, like you said, nefarious activity, is that he's an entrepreneur and he's, he's trying to also build a music empire uh, at the same time. Uh, Big Nate McCall is trying to do the exact same thing. I'm not saying that these are good guys, but these are the, the avenues that I feel maybe they had had to take in order to make money in certain areas. And to me, the Brute Music Festival for all of the, the, the murder and the bloodshed that came out of it, this terrible dark shadow that was cast over it, there were a lot of people involved that saw this as a really positive music festival that could have been huge for those artists to make the funk music and the R&B music and that community uh, really on top had it gotten some kind of real legitimate publicity. You know, over this past year, there was another music festival that took place, I think it was in Harlem, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, there's this incredible documentary yeah. that Questlove directed. Nobody heard about this thing for decades and decades and decades. There's another one that got buried. So then you have something like this where the only thing that's even remotely you know, uh, remembered by people, thanks to journalists like you, is that it is unfortunately a footnote. We have no photos. There's no memories. But the artists that were there took it very seriously. And the people that went there to enjoy the music and celebrate the music took it very seriously. So the criminal activity really put this, this terrible dark shadow on top of something that was supposed to do something in a, in a positively uh, so, a social aspect to it. And if you look at it in that way, that really fascinated. I think our articles are going to have a lot of the same info, but in a different, a different spin on it. Because I got very sad when I was seeing the, the missed opportunity of what the Brute Music, Music Festival could have become for the Baltimore area had it not been run by gangsters, had it, had it continued. And there was a, a, you know, another annual one the next year, and then the next year. The idea, I have to say this, the idea that, uh, you know, Nighthawk Terry was also very important during the civil rights era. He knew James Brown and had, and helped on the air. He tried. He helped quiet riots that were in the streets. Uh, he was the most the prominent African American DJ in that entire tri-state area of DC, exactly. Uh, uh, exactly. Maryland, and Virginia. I mean, he was a cele- I mean, he was a true celebrity. Exactly. Good stuff could have come out of this. And then when you see what the fallout was, it's a sh- it's it's shocking to me. But I think it also makes. An, an incredible story. Nighthawk Terry was was living on the razor's edge. I mean, yes, he, he was. He was this yes, he was. incredibly popular and successful radio personality. But then, if, if you read the files that I have on him from the DEA, he was, you know, at, at very least, he was brokering drug deals, if not doing them himself. Uh, he was heavily yeah. involved in uh, the payola. Um, scandals of the day, and that's where he met McCullough and and Levy. They really pioneered the payola, <laughs> uh, the whole concept of payola. Um, a lot of people point to Levy and then uh, McCullough vis a vis Levy as really being trailblazers in the in the world of payola and, and writing the book on on how you quote unquote independently promote. Um, a a album or a, or a group or a song uh, by exactly. you know, greasing yeah. palms of disc jockeys and 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 
program directors to get your get your music played. And uh, that's how, I mean, honestly, that's how Bob Marley got played. Uh, McCullough yep. uh, tapped uh, uh, Frankie Crocker, who was one of the big New York uh, African-American DJs. And luckily, uh, you know, Crocker, I'm sure with, I'm sure some of that luck had to do with some money that was going Crocker's way. Uh, Crocker yeah. embraced the whole concept of reggae and started playing Marley and and uh, other artists from Jamaica in the late seventies and brought him to 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 the to the to the masses. But I'm telling you, Crocker wouldn't have done that if if McCullough and Levy hadn't been pay, paying him to play that music. Exactly. And then Frankie Crocker got got caught up in a lot of this payola stuff. Uh, and then I just want to reference the the fifth murder uh, Please, from yeah. from that situation was a murder that happened right before uh, or the year before the festival, and it was tied to the payola scandal um, involving Nighthawk Terry. And it was a uh, another DC disc jockey by the name of uh, Soul Papa Campbell, and uh, Soul Papa Campbell was. Mm-hmm. Uh, involved in the the payola and possibly some money laundering and and drug dealing. He was uh, subpoenaed to go in front of a grand jury to discuss uh, Frankie Crocker, the Genovese crime family, McCullough, Levy, and and all that. And uh, I believe uh, in the days before he was supposed to hit that grand jury, uh, he was found uh, murdered on the side of the road in Virginia, um, last seen leaving his radio station. In D.C. And that murder was uh, uh, the, the FBI considered McCullough uh, another suspect, uh, one of the main suspects in the Soul Papa King. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you, either one of you, did Nighthawk Terry fully appreciate how connected McCullough was? Probably not. I mean, is that why he is? He thought, you know, I'm going to tell you what he thought. Yeah. He thought he's like, oh, OK, uh, those Italians are big shots in New York City, but I got Linwood Gray on my back. Yeah. <laughs> and Linwood Gray was the, you know, at the time, was yeah. the, the biggest African-American criminal operating in Washington, D.C. Yeah, against one I, of the five families. I was going to say, <laughs> Nighthawk Terry miscalculated. That's right. Uh, if we were weighing, the, weighing those guy. two guys out. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. and in fact, I would say Linwood Gray escaped the same fate as Nighthawk Terry and Soul Papa Bell simply because— he had his own legal problems at the time and was on trial. I believe he might have been being held without bail um, in this the fallout from this. So I believe that the, the Genovese would have called him to to to, to account for this and probably murdered Sounds him too like it, yeah. if he hadn't have been dealing with uh, his own legal problems. Yeah, and they couldn't get to him. It couldn't get to him. Yeah. Well, you know, Scott, you know this better than anyone. The, the, the history of crime itself, okay, there in, in, in every country, and you can look at it in this country, in the history of it, you've, got, you've done some serious deep dives into the history of crime, especially in the, in the Detroit area. But there is a legitimate economy, and then there is the criminal economy, and it's always filled with entrepreneurs and hostile takeovers. And to me, the idea that this, that this incident happened is a miscalculation by the organizers massive proportions. and they all, they all paid the price. Yeah, exactly. But that's what also fascinated me is what is what it could have represented, but the hands that were out to try and get a little piece of this and a little piece of that. And the end result is that I had never even heard about this festival at all until I'll be honest until I read gangster report. Yeah. I only and came, and I only came a, this. And I stumbled <laughs> across it because I was doing a series 
on Mo Levy uh, based yeah. on an HBO show that was out back in 2016 called Vinyl, which, by the way, yeah. if, you've, if you haven't yeah. seen it, go check it out. I loved it. It was only one season on HBO uh, about the music industry in the 70s. Bobby kind of produced it, right? Yeah, Martin, yeah. Scorsese, Martin Scorsese produced it. Mick Jagger was also involved. Uh, Mick Jagger's oh, cool. son is one of the stars of the show. Um, and they had a character that was Bobby Cannavale's mentor, who they, uh, the character's name was Maury Gold, but Maury Gold was clearly based on Mo Levy. So I was doing a series on Mo Levy, and then from my research into Mo Levy, I stumbled across this, <laughs> this festival that I, like you said, I had no idea that it existed. I had no idea that there was a festival for there to be fallout from. You guys know people in Hollywood, and I don't. But I can see this being a movie. Yeah. I can see this, just this whole thing and all the angles, like the, the angle of like how this is going to be a positive, empowering, and then how, but then you have the gangsters, then you have, then you have people in the music industry who are shady and the different moving parts. And a very, I think it'd be a great documentary. Tragic ending where, where some of the main characters end up yeah. getting clipped. And uh, is there any way that we can get this uh, made into a movie? <laughs> I like it as a well, docu-series. Yeah, I see it the same way. I, but it's funny that you say that because when you look at, at the fallout of it, in my head, I'm, I, I can't help but imagine, you know, the fallout of the Lufthansa heist. Right. No, it is. There's, there, there's a, there's the a lot of parallels thing. there. Yeah. From Goodfellas. Uh, but what I like is, is when I do an article like this, I like to pick a criminal uh, uh, footnote that also requires an incredible soundtrack. Yes. Oh, so yeah. So to me... And that's the way that I look at it is, is this has been fascinating to research and to speak with Scott on it, but it's also the music and the era. And I, I feel that there is a cinematic bent to it, to be per perfectly honest, because I think people will be fascinated of, of what happened and what almost was. I just want to point out that Linwood Gray goes on trial uh, in the years after the festival. And the festival is brought up in his testimony. Um, not, not specifically related to murders or anything, but in terms of the organizing of the festival, the money laundering uh, that was possibly going on at the festival and the, the counterfeiting that was going on in the festival. And Linwood Gray admitted under oath that he, he was a conspirator in the, uh, the uh, fake tickets and that he had a previous um, working relationship with Nighthawk Terry and the Genovese crime family. So yeah. it makes me believe that that wasn't their first time doing business together. Um, that is what it would sound like. That, I would that, agree that, with that possibly. Yeah. Uh, so so that but that would also lend lend you to to believe that they should have known. This wasn't their first rodeo with these guys. You should have known that yeah. who you were ripping off was going to end up yeah, with, that, that's, with you getting That's clipped. what I was thinking of. It's just really the – but we've talked about this before with guys like this that end up dead, the hubris. A lot of guys in this world have that hubris of like, I whack you, you don't whack. Yeah. I whack them out, they don't whack me yeah. out. <laughs> and, Lin, and Linwood Gray was someone that was suspected in a number of yeah. gangland homicides through the 70s. They could never pin anything on him. Yeah. So I'm sure – I'm not, I shouldn't say I'm sure. I would guess that Nighthawk Terry felt like he had a yeah. a, a pretty heavy-duty ace up his sleeve in, in Linwood Gray without realizing that, you know, the five families are going to trump any big-time yeah, right. uh, drug dealer. Right. <laughs> Whatever race they were. Right. 
Um, so let's talk about your um, your music writing and how you got into it. And, oh, thank you, man. Yeah, yeah, and, and talk oh. about your your process and writing the 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 oh, Zevon book, you, and then you know uh, talk a little bit about the Bonham book. Well, to be honest with you, it is all kind of sort of interrelated. I will sum it up quick. The reason I'm doing the Elmore Leonard book is because when I was 15, for a very fleeting moment in my life, very special to me, is that Dutch was a bit of a pen pal. My first short story that I ever wrote was a crime story that got uh, rejected, and rightfully so, because it was horrible. But I had wanted to be a writer, and he was already my hero. And, you know, when you're 15, the first rejection that you get in life is supposed to be from a pretty girl that's not interested in you. My first rejection in life was the editorial board of Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine. <laughs> so I, I had taken the, art of the story I wrote and in a very naive way wrote a letter to my hero and sent it care of HarperCollins. And I thought maybe at the very least I'd get like an autographed photo of Dutch. But that's not what happened. He, he, he actually proofread my story. Wow. And sent me a, a beautiful letter uh, with all kinds of tips, many of which later ended up in his 10 rules on writing. And he sent me a short story he had just completed and said, pay attention to this, pay attention to this. And when I met him at a book signing not long after, I, was, I, I almost started crying. He remembered me. <laughs> and then when I was, 20, I was 21, my first short story sold, I got a letter of congratulations from him. So this is someone that was always special. And I have always wanted, even though I veered off into nonfiction, it was thanks to him because I was 15 next year in high school. Um, uh, I showed that letter to my English teacher, got a letter of recommendation and was able to get uh, my first job ever as a cub reporter at a local newspaper. And I stayed with nonfiction. So Dutch got me my first job and what became a career. So that is, that is why I am working on this as a passion project. I had to say that. Uh, but what eventually happened is I started to write feature stories and I was a newspaper guy, uh, in my late teens and into my twenties. Now everything is pretty much printless, but at the time, I mean, it was still in print, you know, it was still printmaking. And, um, I, as, as a fan, uh, as a musician myself, I played piano just for fun. I have a big interest in music and, uh, musical family and Warren Zevon fits right in. Uh, that was my first book because as a musical hero, Warren's rock music pretty much tells crime stories. And he loved all the authors that we've been talking about for the last hour and a half. And it's reflected in his really cerebral, cerebral rock music. So it took time to write that, but I was very fortunate. My, my agent is a very close friend of mine, William Clark, and he signed me based on the, 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 the letter I had written to him of what I wanted to write as a biography of Warren Zevon. It took a little long to write the first one, but uh, my mother had been ill and passed away during it. But uh, when it was finally completed, I, I think that in a way I, I try and use the devices of a novel or a, a, a hopefully a good novel, even though it's nonfiction. Uh, Warren was one of the most fascinating guys in rock history that I can name. He was a huge, avid reader. He had aspirations as a writer himself. He was a musical prodigy. And his rock music, anybody that listens to this podcast would probably really enjoy the music of Warren Zevon. And I was fortunate that early reviews for it allowed me to make a pitch for what became my, my new book, which is John Bonham. And I will say this, one of the things that fascinated me the most about Bonham isn't just Bonham himself. It was how Led Zeppelin really climbed the ranks of the top tier of what bands could get away with. Oh, the yeah. idea of ticket sales and light shows. They pretty much invented arena rock. And the main reason was because their manager, Peter Grant, 
was a, I was going to say this, he was a former bouncer, bouncer and wrestler. And pretty much uh, if he loved you and he represented you, you had the ultimate giant in your corner. But he also knew firsthand men like Morris Levy. And when he worked with Jimmy Page, he was going to ensure that his, his musicians did not get raked over the coals for songwriting credit, for licensing, for any of that. So Zeppelin pretty much got away with what bands today get away with, but it was invented by someone, uh, Peter Grant. It was someone who knew what had taken place in the 50s and 60s by bad representation and the criminal element within the music industry. Led Zeppelin's success was a huge byproduct of someone who wanted to work against that. As far as the creative process is concerned, thank you for asking that. I try and write something where I think good, good novels are largely based on dialogue and little exposition. I try and do the same thing. I try and get as many interviews as I can, transcripts, anything that where uh, quotes can take the place of dialogue. Because like Dutch always said, nobody skips dialogue. So I try and do the same thing. Uh, and Beast uh, is the name of, of my John Bonham book. It's, it's Beast, John Bonham, and the Rise of Led Zeppelin. It came out uh, September 7th. And that's the one that's out right now. I, I, I kind of sort of give myself a week off before I go into the next book. But then again, Scott, I also know that every time I talk to you, you're working on something also. A week off, I admire your I, – I, I, my book came out in 2015. Oh, I've, taken, I've taken six years off. <laughs> well, I wish I could write like that. I'm looking forward to getting to do the same you know, thing. I've written six, I, you know, I, I wrote, I've written six books, and uh, I yeah. thought that that yeah. was kind of going to be what I was doing with my career. And I, I made a conscious decision about five years ago, six years ago, to uh, evolve, I guess. And I, I, I made a – I just – at the end of the day, and, and you can speak to this, at the end of the day, authoring is like working at McDonald's and it, it, <laughs> with a lot more prestige. So I, I, just, I just had to do a cost-benefit analysis – um, and if I, if I publish again and I'm going to, I, I will author in the you future, will. but I will only author, uh, projects that are attached to, to television and film and, and will be projects that, that come with it big advances because the days of me taking, you know, thirty forty thousand dollars to, to do three years of work. Um, I'd be lucky to get that for one of my books. Right. So just so people know, <laughs> look into my mind. But Bernie's saying that money, most writers don't even get that. Yeah. Well, I just got a royalty. <laughs> I just got a royalty from one of my books yesterday. So I have six books. Out of those six, I only see a royalty from two. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I know how this works. Scott. So there's four books. Four books that I have not seen anything yeah. on the back end. <laughs> right. Right. That's common. Well, I will say this. I like the McDonald's comparison, but you of all people will appreciate this. I think of what we do as being a heist man. Like De Niro and Heat. Yeah. <laughs> book, Taking down scores. The big bank. Yeah. You know, the bank is the big book. And when we sell an article, eh, it's an armored car. And we have to live off of those from one to the next until there's the next score. And I don't think it's actually an inappropriate comparison. I've been excited about turning over this new leaf or I've turned over this new leaf where I'm now providing content for television and film producers um, to then develop into – uh, TV shows and movies. So that's, uh, badass. That th that's, awesome. that's where I'm yeah. kind of uh, getting my mojo from right now. And I know some of these projects will, you know, counter evolve into book projects at the end of the day. 
But I, I think what I'm seeing uh, is is a, is a reversal of the paradigm where at first the book uh, was the first domino to fall and then from a book, a movie, TV, yada, yada, yada. But now I think it's I know a, that I, my interest, I actually think it's know, the other way around now. I think now you, you, you sell it as a, as a property that's going to be on uh, your, your streaming service or is going to be on your uh, big screen. And then from the notoriety that that gets, you follow that up with the book. Right. I get it. But I, I understand we only have a few minutes left and you and I talk outside of interviews anyway, but since, since we're going to be on air, I have to ask you of your six books, what is your personal favorite that you've done? I'm really curious about that. I mean, I don't really blink when I say this, you know, the book that I'm most proud of is mafia Prince. Um, uh, it's a book about, uh, the Philadelphia mafia in the 1970s and eighties, uh, that really takes place in Atlantic city. And if you're uh, anybody that's listening to this that doesn't know, if you're a fan of Boardwalk Empire, uh, this is basically that same story. But instead of it taking place in the 20s, it's taking place in the 70s and 80s. And the main character, instead of being uh, Nucky Johnson, is um, my main character, uh, Crazy Phil Leonetti, who was the mafia prince of Philadelphia. Um, I hope one day that that gets developed into a uh, movie or a television series. There's been... A couple opportunities over the years that just uh, have kind of died on the vine, but it, it definitely lends itself to to that See type if you of you can a, talk Phil in, Phil in this. <laughs> Phil, <laughs> Phil I, I'll, I'll just say this. Phil, <laughs> Phil has very high expectations. <laughs> no, uh, Phil, Phil doesn't uh, <laughs> want to have conversations with people that are not Martin Scorsese or David Chase, <laughs> right. which just makes it difficult well, <laughs> to, to do deals. I, you know, I'll just give this small little insight. We, we had a potential deal with David Mamet, who's my Ooh. one of, you know, if Elmore Ooh. Leonard's my favorite uh, uh, fiction writer, uh, my favorite mm-hmm. uh, screenplay writer of all time, my favorite playwright of all time is David Mamet. And mm-hmm. uh, David Mamet and his, his daughter and his son-in-law were interested in, in developing Mafia Prince into a television series a couple of years ago. And we just oh, cool, we man. could not cut a deal, um, unfortunately. And then they walked away from, from the negotiating table. But uh, it, 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 it's, it, it will be in the cards at, at some point. So I would say Mafia it Prince. It has to feel good. Mafia yeah, Prince, just- uh, followed by my Chicago book, uh, Family Affair, which is the true story behind the movie Casino, um, and then my mm-hmm. Detroit book. My, my, my book that was the most successful locally was my my Motor City Mafia book, which put my you know got me on the map here. And frankly, when I uh, when I go through that book, I cringe because I just uh, I was so early on in my writing and researching, and the 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 book editorial was so poorly done. Uh, the book has sold incredibly well going on like 12 years now, 13 years. I still see a royalty from that book. People love it. Uh, people swear by it. And and I, it obviously got me my start. There are parts of it that I really like, but there are parts of me where I, I really can't look at that book and go through it without feeling sick to my stomach. <laughs> Does it bother you that Elmore Leonard read it? <laughs> no, I mean, I think he was reading it more for, I think he was reading it for the facts that I put in it. And he, I don't think he was reading it for, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, my slick prose. <laughs> well, 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 really quick, your, your Atlantic City book. 
after your loyal listeners finish with your book, I have to make the recommendation that they then read Dutch's book, Glitz. Yes, Glitz is, is great. Great Atlantic City crime novel. I highly recommend that one. Pair that up with your book. There you go. Those are the two. Well, this was awesome. Chad, you are always welcome back on the OG podcast to oh, talk about you, anything you got coming down the pike. Uh, like I said, this is a a true rising star in the world of uh, of, of oh, thanks, music books and uh, just just really in the literary world in general. This is a guy you need to know about. Thank you, brother. Uh, a, a hot commodity that will uh, always be uh, a friend of the program. And uh, Jimmy, you got any uh, closing I'd words? Just, Chad, I'd like to talk to you off air if you have a moment to have before we sign off. <laughs> I will I mean, have yeah, We're going to geek out on uh, <laughs> off air with some uh, music uh, trivia. And yeah. and uh, we're both, uh, me and Jimmy are both big uh, rock and roll aficionados. And uh, and he loves Zeppelin. Oh, I, I love Zeppelin. Um, you know, that Zeppelin for me was, was really what got me into uh, classic rock. Uh, was me. Uh, I was at summer camp and I had a British uh, uh, camp counselor when I was like 10 or 10 years old. He introduced me to the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. And I was, I actually found him on Facebook about 10 years ago and I wrote him. I was like, you introduced me to my love of rock and roll, sir. <laughs> That's cool. So uh, thank you, Chad. Thanks. Uh, thank uh, you so much, guys. All of our uh, audience out there, all of uh, the people that consume our podcast and our content. Uh, you know, we do this for you guys and we love bringing you this uh, fresh out of the box uh, take on, on the world of crime and then dovetailing it with pop culture, music, sports, uh, entertainment. And this was, this was a great episode. Uh, we're going to bring Chad back on. Uh, I promise he'll be back on in the future uh, to talk about uh, more about the Elmore Leonard book and uh, more about maybe when the, uh, your, your magazine article drops in the summer, we'll bring you back on. Good luck with everything you're doing. Oh, we're going to talk. Yeah. Good luck down in South Carolina. And the same to you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Happy holidays, and I'm very grateful to have been a guest. Can't wait to come back. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Chad. Uh, so uh, for, real quick, Chad, tell everyone where they can find your stuff and, and, and follow you and uh, keep up with what, what you're going on with your career. Oh, thank you. Uh, the books are available where all fine books are sold. Any bookstores that are now open post-pandemic, they should be uh, available thanks to the Christmas season. They are online. Uh, Decapo Press put out uh, Nothing's Bad Luck, The Lives of Lauren Zevon in 2019. My follow-up is uh, Beast, John Bonham and the Rise of Led Zeppelin, which is Hachette. Uh, both are available right now, and uh, you can look me up online. There will be a website coming soon. I'm going to have to take care of that over the holidays, but uh, I am accessible, and I always love hearing from people who share my passion for music, crime stories, like yourself, and uh, any any readers out there. So I'm uh, always happy to hear from, from readers who have something nice to say. <laughs> so thank you so much, uh, guys. Thanks, Chad. For Jimmy Bucciolato, this is Scott Bernstein. We'll be back next week on the OG Podcast. Out.